Malcolm is kindly going to speak to us this morning, and his subject, the, the widest part of his subject, is around humility. I think there's a slight irony there. I'm not known for humility particularly, and here I am standing in front of you, so I've got a lot to learn from this. And, and I thought we could start with just reading from uh, Micah before we sing our first song, just to remind us of what God is really looking for in us. So this is from Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to sing from the Green Hymn Book. We've got some songs up on the slide, some in the Green and some in the Praise the Lord Book. So please make sure you've got those. And we're going to sing a song about our reaction to this, our humility. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Bow down before him, his glory proclaim. With gold of obedience and incense of loneliness, kneel and adore him. The Lord is his name. And we'll pray after we've sung that. Father, almighty God, creator of the universe and all that's in it, we come before you in humility, in awe, (coughs) amazed at the mere fact that we can be here. Amazed at what you have done to create a world of life and of love. Amazed at our own weakness, our own failings, and the challenges that we face which sometimes overcome us. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to concentrate on you and your lovely son, Jesus, to focus on what it is that you have planned for us in our lives and for this world and not to focus on our lives our importance our needs and our concerns I pray that you'll be able to strengthen us through the words that Malcolm gives us today but also through the fellowship that we enjoy together and the friendship that we can share Make us your angels, Lord. Push us to give a hug, shake a hand, talk for a bit longer than we might do to our brothers and sisters so that they can see that this is a place where your love is reflected. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Rosie and Anne went to visit Marion this week. She was cheerful and chatty and had a better week last week. Um, she's on more medication and now has angina on top of all her other problems. She does enjoy visitors, but please contact her first to see how she is. Anne is continuing to apply for jobs and getting interviews, and we pray that God is with you, Anne, but also with all those struggling with work issues at the moment to give them strength and comfort. Remember, Nikki, Jacob and Sam asked that they might have a better week this week and that Sam can have a positive week at school particularly. And obviously we pray for David and for Jessica in the loss of Wendy as they grieve at this time. 
Elaine says we keep all those members of our church in, in our prayers, those that we know struggle daily and those that we don't see very often too. We're going to pray shortly about those that we've just heard about and anybody else that you'd like to bring to our attention. Is there anything that you want to raise? We want to grasp the true meaning of life, which is a love of you, a love of your son Jesus and the salvation that flows from you to us. But there are difficulties day in, day out for some of us. And we've heard about some of those today. Illnesses, family members that are either passed away, some who are in difficult conditions at the moment. We've heard about people who struggle with work and some of us who just struggle with life. And I pray, Lord, that you will listen to and answer our prayer and their prayer. That where it's your will, you'll bring healing. Healing of the body, of the spirit and the mind. Healing of the confidence that we can approach you in humility and ask for your hand as a father and I pray that you'll bring us all spiritual healing that where this week we've been angry where we've forgotten to behave in a way that is so simply the way that your Jesus your son Jesus lived where we've challenged people unfairly where we've where we've not been the angels to our brothers and sisters, that you'll help us not to give up and you will give us the strength to uplift each other. Not because we can win any of your favour by our strength, but because we want to show the world the effect that knowing you and your son Jesus has in our lives so that we can be true witnesses of your love. Amen. We're going to sing two hymns now, um, the second of which is in Praise the Lord. I know I didn't say the number last time, so the second one is Praise the Lord 40. And that, that is... A quote, really, a, a repeat of the, the verses in Micah that we read before. But first of all, we're going to sing this song. Who can know the mind of our Creator? Who can speak of wonders yet unseen? Who can reach the height of understanding to play the notes of wisdom's melody? I stand in awe of you, so glorious in true. I stand in awe. It is important, isn't it, to stand in awe of our Heavenly Father, but he actually asks us to be motivated to do, and in our lives, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, about Solomon at the time of the dedication of the temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all of the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice with 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard, in front of the temple of the Lord, and there he offered burnt offerings, and the fat of the fellowship offerings, because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the flat portions. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath to the body of Egypt. On the eighth day they held an assembly, that they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days, and the festival for seven days more. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague upon my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple, so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me, as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne, as I covenanted with David your father, when I said, You shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, Then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple, which I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land, to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Thank you, Joe. Malcolm, will you come and speak to us, please?
morning, everyone. I think if um, experience tells us anything, um, it tells us that when we start uh, asking God for things, everything is going to change. It's always for, for the better, but it's not always predictable. But the purpose of uh, prayer is not to tell God what we want him to, to do, but to align our hearts with what he wants to do. And the one who prays is the one who is changed uh, often more than the one who is prayed for. Solomon must have been uh, exhilarated. This was the greatest day uh, of his life. The temple of David, the temple of which his father had dreamed, the temple for which his ancestors had prayed. The temple of Israel was complete. The work of 70,000 laborers, 80,000 stone cutters, 3,600 job supervisors. The work was done. Pure gold covered parts of the interior. Precious stones were numerous. From the golden altar to the woven curtains, all was ready. The Ark of the Covenant had been carried through the desert and was placed in the Holy of Holies. And all that was missing was the presence of God. And so Solomon requests it in a beautiful prayer that's recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 6. If you'd just like to flip back, if you're still in Second Chronicles chapter 7, it's just, just before that. And he says, God come and dwell among your, your people. The king of Israel requested the presence of the king of the universe. And how did God respond to this request? When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's what it says in Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. And the people responded by falling face first on the pavement, declaring, He is good, and his love endures forever. And the people were so overcome that they stayed to worship, not just for an hour, not just for a Sunday, not just for a week, but for 15 days. And finally, Solomon had to send them home. And Solomon sent the people to the homes, joyful and glad of heart, for the good tidings that the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people, the Israelites. It was the greatest day in the life of Solomon, arguably the greatest day in the life of Israel, in the history of Israel. Solomon retreated to his palace, probably thinking that finally he would get some rest. But though he was finished with the temple, God was not finished with Solomon. Because that night, God came to him and spoke to him directly in the privacy of his chambers. And we read about it in verse 12 of chapter 7. And he said, I've heard your prayers and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. 
Don't you know that Solomon was thrilled to hear those words? Don't you know that he felt affirmed and assured in his heart? And maybe he was expecting more words of assurance and promises of prosperity. But the the next words are not words of assurance. They're words of, of prophecy. God says in verse 13, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, what strange words for God to say. It's a day of dedication, the day at which Israel is at a spiritual high, the day at which the people have spent the day praying to God and worshipping him. And and yet God says, no, there's going to come a time when I need to send locusts to devour the land and a plague among the people. Why does God say that? Why does God say that? Because God knows that today's promise is tomorrow's forgetfulness. Today's promise is tomorrow's forgetfulness. And that the loyalty of God's people is fragile. And he'll do whatever it takes to awaken his people, even if that involves sending calamity upon them. And now while he has Solomon's attention, he wants Solomon to know when that happens, here is what you need to do. And he gives this promise, which I believe is one of the most beloved verses in the entire Bible. It's in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What must be present before God brings revival to his people? What elements does God look for before he visits his people? What's a genuine invitation for which God listens? What conditions of spirituality are necessary before the rains of refreshing will come and God will change a nation? He answers that question with this verse. Humility in heart, earnestness in prayer, and repentance of sin. The healing of the land begins with the people of God. The healing of the land begins with the people of God. God does not say, if the land will humble itself, all the people of the countryside, countrywide, humble themselves. He says, if my people will humble themselves... God's people have a thermostatic influence on the nation. And the way the church lives is the way the nation is blessed. This promise that God gives to Solomon is also the promise that God gives to us. And it begins with humility of heart. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. In just a minute, I want to try and answer the question, at least in part, what does it mean to humble ourselves?
Humility is such an elusive virtue. Once you've convinced you have it, you don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't be convinced you did. (laughs) You You might have heard the story of the boy who received the most humble badge and got it taken away because he wore it. (laughs) But what, what does it mean? What does it mean? God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, what does that mean? Let's just answer that question with three observations. First, what God loves. Second, what God hates. And third, what God uses. I might prepare you just for about that you're about to enjoy a battery of verses. The recurring message of scripture is what God loves is humility. Jesus said, I am meek and humble of heart. Loves those who are gentle and humble in heart. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Psalm 138 verse 6. I live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, he says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory, he says in Psalm 149, verse 4. He also says, these are the ones I look on with favor, for those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Isaiah 66, verse 2. And to the humble, he gives wonderful treasures. He gives honor. Humility comes with honor. Proverbs 15, verse 33. He gives wisdom. With humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 11, verse verse 2. He gives direction. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Psalm 25, verse 9. And most significantly, he gives grace. God gives grace to the humble. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. 1 Peter 5, and verse 5. And this reassurance, for the Lord takes delight in his people, he crowns the humble with victory. You know, the mightiest of saints were known for their humility. Moses was once the prince of Egypt. He is known as the emancipator of slaves. But the Bible says that Moses was more humble than anyone else. Numbers 12 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul was saved through a personal visit of Jesus. He was caught up to the third heaven, whatever that means. A writer of scripture, a leader of churches, he even raised the dead. But when he introduced himself, he mentioned none of these. He simply said, I am Paul, God's slave. John the Baptist was a blood relative of Jesus the most famous evangelist who ever lived. But he's remembered in scripture as the one who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. God loves humility. 
Hudson Taylor was, was a missionary um, to China in the 1800s. It was said that the sun never rose nor set on China in the China that Hudson Taylor was not on his knees in prayer for that great nation. And he once received a visit from uh, a son of an affluent uh, businessman from Great Britain. And this, this son of the affluent businessman was accustomed to the, the finer things of life. And he came and he spent a few days uh, in the house of Hudson Taylor in China. And the first night, the boy took off his boots and put them outside the door of his bedroom. You see, he grew up in a nice home, and the practice was to take off your boots, leave them outside, and the servant would come and pick them up, polish them, and they'd be there ready in the morning. Well, the boy, accustomed to such treatment, thought that it was everywhere. And so he took off his boots, placed them outside the doorway, and he was unaware that Hudson Taylor had no hired servants. But the next morning when he awoke, he found the boots polished just as where he had left them. He left them there the next night and the next and the next. And I don't know how many days it was before he realized that it was Hudson Taylor himself who was washing the boots without a complaint of this, this young man. I think God loves that kind of heart. He loves the humble heart. What God loves is humility. But by the same token, what God hates is arrogance. He doesn't dislike, just dislike arrogance. He doesn't just disapprove of arrogance. He hates arrogance. Could he say it any more clearly than he does in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13? I hate pride and arrogance. The Lord detests all the proud of heart, he says in Proverbs 16 and verse 5. God says, do nothing out of vain conceit. I'd like to say, one day I might obey that verse, just one day. Perhaps we're all in the same boat. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. And just as he gives grace to the humble, Peter says, he opposes the proud. It might help you to know that this Greek word is a military term, which means to set barricades against. God not only hates arrogance, he sets barricades against the arrogant. And just as humility goes before honor, So pride goes before what, church? We all know, don't we? A fall. If you thought that was just an old-fashioned saying, it comes from the mouth of God. Have you ever wondered why churches are powerful and full in one generation and empty and weak the next? It's because the Lord tears down the house of the proud. What does God love? Humility. What does God hate? Arrogance. So what does God use? Humble people. Humble people.
You want to be used by God, seek humility. Again, please note the second phrase of Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people will humble themselves, I will heal their land. Not if the people of the land will humble themselves, I will heal the land. Nor if my people will humble themselves, I will heal my people. But the healing of the land begins with the humility of God's people. Which leads us to ask this very convicting question. And that is, if the land is not healed, could it be because the people of God are not humble? Humility says things need to be changed and the change begins with me. Now the first part of the statement is, is not hard to make, is it? We look around a country and we say things need to be changed. And fingers are pointed at the Liberals or UKIP or we heap some scorn on the Conservatives. And as we begin pointing fingers at them, we begin to start feeling pretty good about us. And we pray a prayer, perhaps like the man who stood and said, God, I thank you that Britain has people like me. The man on the corner needs social security. I don't. The drunk at the pub needs alcohol. I don't. The young need correction and morality. I don't. I thank you that Britain has people like me. At the same prayer meeting, a man of humble heart, too contrite even to look into heaven, prayed, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Like my brother on benefits, I depend on your grace. Like my sister with AIDS, I'm infected with mistakes. And like my friend who drinks, I need something to ease the pain. And like all these, those young people who you love, I too am in need of correction and morality. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And after telling a story like that, Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. All who make themselves great will be made humble. But all who make themselves humble will be made great. Arrogance points a finger at a problem. Humility points a finger at self and admits it being a part of the problem and say, begin with me. It's hard to see why God would give this promise in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 to Solomon. The nation and the king are at the pinnacle of power. He's a sitting duck for cockiness. If Solomon was ever, was ever to feel proud, it was that day when the temple had been built, when the people were unified, and when their sense of satisfaction and contentment was all through the land. It was that day. It's not hard to see. But you know, as time wore on, and as your 
pages in the Old Testament, as you turn them over, you see that Solomon forgets, don't you? He forgot who built the temple. He forgot who unified the people. He forgot. And time passed. And Solomon forgot his message. God being our helper, may we never forget ours. Will we make the same mistake as Solomon? As we seek humility and avoid arrogance. I just want to close with a few questions and just see how we respond. There are questions not really for the individual heart, but as a church, are we seeking humility? Let's call it a pride test. And let's see, as God's people, if we are still humble. Do we treat the poor who come our way with the same respect we treat the affluent? If not, we've grown arrogant. Can we drive around our city without a stab of conscience for the less fortunate or a stirred heart for the lost? So we may be forgetting. Are we too busy to pray? Too busy to thank our Lord who died for us? Does those of any race or any language feel welcome here? If not, we're too arrogant. Do we in our own lives cherish misbehavior that we know doesn't please God? But we'll deal with it someday. If not, if so, then we've grown arrogant. Do those who've been members here for a while feel more than those who have only been here for a week, feel more valued? If so, we've grown arrogant. Do we ever trust our money rather than the spirit of Christ? Is the Christadelphian church more important than the Christ of the church? Do we boast of our building more than we boast of the cross? If so, then we're growing arrogant. Most of us, most of all, is there a thought among us that says our work is done? If so, may God have mercy on us because his work is just beginning. He has a passion for this city and the people in it. And if God's people will humble themselves and seek his face, then he will hear from heaven and he will heal not just our neighborhood, not just our city. He'll heal our land. I'd just like to share with you uh, the summary of a sweet story I read just a few weeks ago. It's about a young girl and she was asked with her dad uh, at the Christmas family gathering to dance the polka. And so there, there in front of all the family and the relatives, this little six-year-old would jump and dance the polka. She did it when she was seven. She did it when she was eight. She did it when she was nine and ten and eleven. But about the age of 12 or 13, you know that transformation that comes on us? She was a little self-conscious. And about the age of 14, she said, No, Daddy, I don't want to dance the polka with you this year. 
She didn't, though. She didn't through secondary school, college. Of course, she wouldn't consider it. She was far too sophisticated. And then she went on her own way. She became a young, successful businesswoman. And of course, you can't come back and dance the polka with your dad. But then came the divorce, and then the job redundancy, and then came the hard times, and then came Christmas. And her dad was sitting on the porch waiting for her in this story. And when she came home, he walked and met her at the street corner as she parked the car. And her first words were, Daddy, would you let me come and dance the polka with you this year? And he said yes. And as I read that little story, I thought, that's a pretty good description of the Christian life. Ah, we're loving when we're young, but then we get sophisticated and smart. And then come the troubles. And we look up and say, he's still there. He's still here. And we humble ourselves and say, I'd love to be in your arms again. God loves the humble heart. May he find humble hearts right here. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let us remember as we partake of the the bread and the wine, the one who was the very model of humility itself, Jesus Christ. He was worthy of a castle, but he was born in a shed. Worthy of a throne, but placed in a manger. Should have been dressed in velvet, but his infant back knew the scratch of cow's hay. And though he could walk on water, he chose to walk the dusty streets of Jerusalem. And though he called forth the dead, he called forth children. And though one day his hands would reach into the heavens, he voluntarily held his hands calm while the nails pierced them. And the head that could have worn a crown of gold voluntarily took a crown of thorns. Think of Jesus, Paul says. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, made himself nothing, who had been found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Amen. That was lovely. I was struck while you were talking that there's a lot of things in our spiritual lives, perhaps the knowledge that we have, that we can kid ourselves and other people with. That you know, They're written in tablets of stone and, and we can hold on to knowledge and think we've got it. And maybe even our behaviours we can hide from other people. But humility is a, a very difficult thing to kid other people and ourselves about, isn't it? If God's laws are written on our hearts and we are truly humble, then... He will know, and we will know too. We're going to sing before we have this bread.
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. I'll worship your holy name. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. John's going to come and offer a word of prayer before we share the bread. Mighty God, what a blessing it's been to be here today. And not just today, but this week. We remembered our sister Wendy. And this, your Bethel was filled with people who remembered a humble woman whose love was shown in deeds and whose love was shown in great kindness. And today, Father God, you've shown us a truly humbling day. I came today expecting just another Sunday and you have humbled me before you. I want to thank our brother Malcolm for his words, but his words have come from your holy word. Our brother Malcolm gleaned from your holy scripture. He learned and he loved from that holy scripture and he has driven that out to us today. And not just that, the voices today seem to have been lifted in great joy to you. These are just words coming out of my mouth because I thank you for this bread which is the most humblest thing of all. Your dear son. How could he love me? How could you love us? And I know you're looking down on us. You're with us now. And you go, but I've always loved you. I've always loved every single one of you. Thank you, Father, now for this bread. Thank you for the love that you have shown to us, which is your dear son. Amen. Andrew's going to lead us in prayer before we share the wine. Father God in heaven, not only in heaven but here with us this morning, we thank you for bringing us here together. We've thought a lot about humility this morning, haven't we, God? And I don't know about everybody else, but it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm sure we all feel uncomfortable because we all like to wear that little badge sometimes, don't we, Lord, of being humble. And then we turn and look at this cup of wine before us, the measure of the true humility of Jesus. And we 
take our badge off and throw it on the floor with everybody else because really we're just nothing. But the great thing is, Lord, we're encouraged through this wine because it reminds us of your covenant of love with us. That we don't have to do anything but just turn and respond to your love. So as John the Baptist said, Lord, help us this week to try and let you increase in our lives while our own self and our own selfish needs diminish. Help us to walk more humbly with you in faith and in joy, Lord, that you care about us. And may that flow through us to those around us that we meet. Hear our prayer now and accept our thanks. In your lovely son's name, amen. I do wonder if we would be uh, more humble individuals, if we were more honest about what we're really like with each other. If we truly confessed our failings, our sins, our real personalities to each other, it would perhaps put us in a different place, wouldn't it? Don't worry too much as you look at me now, what I'm going to say. But I will confess that we're going to end on a slightly more contemplative note than I had intended because I've got the last two songs in the wrong order. And the funny thing is, because our musicians are so talented, they carried it off and made it look as though the mistake was on the board. The mistake wasn't on the board. <laughs> it was me. But we are going to sing together, we bow down, and confess, you are Lord in this place. It's your face I seek. In the presence of your light, we bow down, we bow down. And Luke's going to pray for us afterwards. And as we sing this, perhaps the image that comes to my mind is Solomon's reaction to his father when the temple was consecrated and God showed his power in that chapter that we read at the beginning. Even Solomon, in all his glory and all his might, bows down and confesses that he is Lord in this place.